This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Recently returned from San Francisco. Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And over in San Francisco, Vanity Fair senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. So this week, we'll be sharing the interview that Richard did with Kelly Reichert, the director of Certain Women, which uh, debuted at the New York Film Festival and is in limited theaters now. It stars Kristen Stewart, Michelle Williams, Laura Dern, among other very talented actresses. As we've discussed throughout the season, it's a really good year for actresses. There's a lot of really powerful performances out there, including in Certain Women, uh, which might be the reason behind the week's big Oscar news, which is that Viola Davis is submitting as a Best Supporting Actress for Fences. None of us have seen Fences. As far as I know, no one has seen Fences. It might not even be finished yet. Well, actually, oh. I think I can say this oh. because Pete Hammond sent it out to all the Gold Derby nerds, of which I am one, on yeah. an email. He says Denzel is locking the picture on November 4th. I don't know if that's true. Ah, just so he gets it done before the election so we can really focus on a yeah. election night. <laughs> so, right, exactly. So I don't know. So it's, Until then, we're all still chasing fences. Yeah. yeah. And right now he's <laughs> And right now I understand he's frantically cutting scenes with Viola to justify oh, yeah. supporting. So, so yeah, so Viola Davis. Just that, I think we could trim 5 seconds off the end of that uh, yeah. so monologue. So for any, you know, she's the, the the female lead of the movie, so that would automatically seem like a leading role. But Fences is an August Wilson play that people have seen, people are familiar with this role. So I haven't actually seen Fences, but this is category fraud, right? Like she has no business being supporting Well, actress. she won the lead Tony award for it, the same role. <laughs> Just so, crazy. But I was I was reading an article that said the original actress who was in Fences won the best supporting yeah. Tony. So yeah, it could go true. either way. Well, yeah, that, uh, that's what Pete pointed out in this email that I'm yeah. quoting from liberally during this podcast, <laughs> but that it, it has been a tr- supporting in the past. So it's not, I, I don't yeah. know that it's like outright but I larceny, also, but it's definitely, it's, you know. I read something also that in order to make this stage play more cinematic, that when August Wilson, who did his own adaptation, added more for both the male and female leads. So the really? part might even be bigger than it is on stage. So it does really feel like that's not a supporting role. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess, agree. You know. Well, but I think we all can see the, you know, the strategic reason behind this. As sure. we talked about last week or two weeks ago, the best actress race is incredibly competitive. And Viola Davis, I think, is it's hard to say anyone's overdue for an Oscar, but I think Viola Davis would qualify for that if anyone would. So if this is her best shot at an Oscar, can we really be mad at her? No, I guess not. It just it's sort of more I think it sort of lays bare sort of more more the strategy of this thing. And it's like, I just want I want the award. So I'm just going to, you know, do it in whatever way I can possible, which is good. I mean, we in a purest sense, we kind of we want them to win for the appropriate thing because the mm-hmm. best actress feels more significant than the best supporting but hey if it gets her award and that's what they all chose to do because the actors do get a say in that yeah look you know. well but even though i demand that this episode be named how to get away with category fraud <laughs> i don't know 
that Viola is necessarily the driving force behind this right. at all, right? Because there are a bunch of people involved in this decision, the studio. I'm sure Viola gets to say if she's okay with it, but I would think that the that the people releasing the film, the filmmakers, everybody's going to make a calculation based on what's best for the film. I'm doing air quotes with mm-hmm. my fingers. You can't see this at home. And saying, look, if we win an Oscar, that gives the film more legs and makes sure more people see it over time than if we get nominated but don't win and we've made a calculation. I mean, imagine having that conversation with Viola, though you can't win actress or maybe it's just like your percentage is higher yeah oh, i think the percentage thing that's a pretty strong your argument percentage i mean i'd higher. go with that right um, do you want to stand up there and give a speech or not <laughs> i was i was looking at her previous losses to sort of get an idea of her oscar narrative and I, you know i remembered that she lost to meryl streep for the iron lady in the same year that octavia spencer won the oscar for best supporting for the help so like and if, viola was if, nominated for the help and best actress in lead and so like if viola had been in supporting in that year i definitely think she would have won and then the first time she lost for doubt she lost to penelope cruz for vicky christina barcelona in the supporting actor category and i would say that cruz was dabbling in category fraud by being supporting for vicky christina barcelona oh, really? so like i think so like um it's hard to say there's three three women in that movie. So, you know, I guess you could divvy it up and say they're all supporting if you wanted to. But I don't know. I, I could see a narrative where even if this was not Viola's like first choice to do this, the previous two losses sort of add up to the math that Mike's talking about in terms of I have a better chance in supporting category. I don't want to lose again. I don't want Viola to lose again. No, so, none of us do. You know. I mean, so this brings up the question of what really defines category fraud. And as we were discussing before uh, we came into the studio, I think women are subject to this more often because you get so many movies about men that are considered serious. And then women are playing the supportive wife-girlfriend role. Last year, Alicia Vikander won for the supportive wife character, who a lot of people thought was a lead actress. And she mm-hmm. and she was in that category with actual supporting players like Jennifer Jason Lee or uh, Rachel McAdams in Spotlight. And they just didn't have the amount of screen time to compare it to. She was also in there with Rooney who was the lead of Carol. So there's multiple category fraud going on last year. Yeah, and the Carol thing was tricky because there were two lead actresses in that movie. And I think it hasn't happened in many years that two people have been nominated in lead for the same film. At least women. It might happen for women more often. And that was a kind of more backstage Weinstein company wrangling thing. And and it was a really late minute decision to put her in supporting because she didn't originally want to do it. Well, and who would have guessed it would have worked? I didn't think it was going to work. Right, right. So that, you know, that was tricky. But it's a very Weinstein thing to do. And there's at least one ex-Weinstein person working on this film so mm-hmm. you know they're they they take this very seriously as a sport with percentages right. versus the pure thing that you're talking about although i do think it's interesting like is there a written definition for what lead actor lead actress and supporting i is? don't think so it's, it's all submission i mean it seems like at least the people who want to maximize their chances base and and give themselves optionality would define it as as long as there's somebody else in the movie with more screen time <laughs> you know, right. you can be supporting. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the yeah. whole, um, you know, Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor for Silence of the Lambs, and he's got like 18 minutes of screen. Maybe not that few, but not. <laughs> no, he's, it's right. in the teens. Yeah, but he's, but he's a white actor. man, so well, I did think he was the lead of the movie, actually. Movie, his right. presence in that movie is so powerful that you can't imagine anyone else. I mean, you that's know, Jodie Foster also won Best Actress, so, you know, they weren't kind of shafting Pete, her as a now result. Now, if Jodie Foster had run for supporting, <laughs> yeah, that would have that been, that been really epic. That would have been insane. There's also the, like, 
Mm, the narrative that I think condemns Hollywood or maybe the Academy of the past than anything else, but the fact that, you know, what is it? One, two, three, four, five, six black women have won in the best supporting actress category and Holly Berry is still the only black actress yeah. to win in lead. You know, we like to think that that this is not an issue at all in the Oscar race. And I know that the Academy is making strides towards a more inclusive class and all of that, but that's another percentage to add to the pile, I think. Yeah. And yeah. it's, I mean, Viola Davis, even though it is a really competitive year, would have stood a really good shot at making her way through the best actress field. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, it's a lot of white women and Ruth Negga for loving. And I, from what I hear, that's really powerful performance, but she doesn't have the same kind of heat that Natalie Portman, Emma Stone and Annette Benning have. So yeah. it, it does feel like a missed opportunity for that particular staff. And I feel like, I mean, Maybe it's in technical categories, but like I feel like Ruth Negga might be the only nomination that movie gets, mm. just from kind of judging the its heat right now. I think you're right that yeah. Ruth probably not as of right now got a chance to go up against Emma Stone and Natalie no. Portman and Viola. Hundred percent did. Yeah. I mean, people were just oh, like, yeah. forget Emma Stone when we were talking right. about this yeah. two weeks ago. Well, Viola Davis is an Emmy winner. She's a multiple Oscar nominee. She's a Tony winner. Like she is kind of royalty in this way. And Ruth Negga is yeah. more of an up and comer, which can be very powerful in a Best Actress race. But it's interesting because one of the things about kind of playing percentages and approaching this like a sport and looking at past patterns to base your behavior is that you do end up perpetuating this kind of stuff you know mm -hmm. so that if the if the whole category fraud originated partly out of people going oh but she's the girl in the movie mm -hmm. she you know let's put her over there but now people see, oh, that's a more surefire way to get an Oscar. It ends up perpetuating things that maybe no one actually embraces, believes in now, or at least hopefully fewer people. Well, what's crazy is sometimes the girl in the movie does wind up in Best Actress. That's how Reese Witherspoon gets her Best Actress statue, because that year there weren't it just wasn't as competitive a year for Best Actress. So it really, huh. it varies uh, wildly uh, right. just based in, on what in, else is out there. In other years, I think that Witherspoon would have been run and supporting, for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah, right, you know. right. Yeah. Also, uh, we were talking about Judy Foster earlier. The last time, as far as I can tell, two actresses from the same movie were nominated for Best Actor was Thelma and Louise. Right. Yeah. Uh, and they both lost to Jodie Foster. Ah, Fun fact. There you go. <laughs> I mean, the interesting thing about Viola coming into Supporting Actress, we talked about it on the show. It's There's a lot of really good performances in there. Michelle Williams in Manchester by the Sea, we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Naomi Harris in Moonlight. But there's no one kind of really running away with it the way like Anne Hathaway was the year of Les Mis. Like, right. Viola coming in there is almost like, all right, well, then there you go. And no one's even seen the movie yet. So Yeah. kind of. It, it's like a way to get a surefire Oscar. You look at Emma, you look at Natalie, and just go, why do I want to turn that into a three-person race? Yeah. And you just take the other one. I think that's all it is. Yeah. No, I think you're right. When the news broke yesterday, what was sort of confirmed I was like oh well Michelle Williams just lost <laughs> I, you know I thought <laughs> she was definitely going to win talking about her yeah, yeah. I yeah. know so I mean that's fine I don't think she doesn't strike me as somebody who like really is intensely into that stuff but who knows you know you never know also sh her Oscar will come it's like Amy yeah. Adams like Michelle Williams and Amy Adams they'll win eventually they've been nominated oh, yeah. too many times but this is about like percentage of screen time exactly because Michelle Williams is so good in Manchester by the Sea but she's only in it for like 15 minutes thereabouts yeah. right like yeah. Yeah. so Viola just has more occasions in Fences presumably since we haven't seen it to do what Mike Hogan what did you say like the snot out of your nose yeah moment. yeah yeah crying with snot <laughs> yeah. coming out of your face right mm -hmm. which is in the trailer for fences so. <laughs> there you go um, there we go i mean one thing about the manchester thing for michelle Williams before we move on is you know the oscars when they win that's a financial thing for these movies mm -hmm. you know like it, it there's a market bump you know I, I mean probably not for supporting actress as much as like best picture but it does matter yeah and you know it matters for amazon to spend a lot of money on this thing and it's like a big play for them i mean that must be kind of a, a scary thing for them because they're like are the one like maybe sure thing is now not 
You yeah, know? although although it looks like maybe they are going to get it with Casey. I mean, mm-hmm. they, you know, it would be interesting if at the end of this whole thing, Casey beats Denzel and Viola right. beats Michelle. Right. And everybody's, you know, everybody gets something. I don't right. know. Huh. Well, I mean, looking at Best Supporting Actor, it's a uh, you know there's there's a lot of stuff that we haven't seen yet. I think we talked about Liam Neeson maybe winning for Silence, but Mahershala Ali in Moonlight is going to be an interesting example of that screen time problem on the male side of things, where he's right. a really powerful presence in Moonlight and then disappears for the rest of it. And yeah. when Barry Jenkins was on the show last week, he said that if Mahershala had been in more of the entire movie, he'd be a slam dunk for an Oscar, which I think everyone would agree with. But it's tricky. I mean, it, it doesn't happen to men as much, where they're kind of you know pushed into supporting actor as a default but there's gonna be some interesting dynamics this year agreed but wait was anyone saying Mahershala would be lead no but like even in supporting actor he disappears from the movie so like by the time it's over you might have forgotten about him and it it wouldn't be like if Liam Neeson is in all of silence then he yeah but although I do think that supporting I always think of the Anne Hathaway in um uh, Les, Mis. Les Mis thing. It's like all you really need for supporting, unless you're facing someone who basically has a lead role, mm-hmm. is one incredible, indelible moment, which is what I think Michelle actually had two in Manchester by the Sea. But when well, somebody comes along and is like, I was in the whole movie basically the lead, but I had like five minutes <laughs> less screen time, then it's hard to compete well, with. Well, that's what happened right. with Viola Davis in Doubt. She has that amazing scene in Doubt that really put her on the map. A true supporting actress. role. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, then loses to Penelope Cruz, who is in way more Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Well, I hope Barry feels bad about structuring his film in a way that doesn't help <laughs> Well, maybe he can do a new cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's pretty happy with the, everything that's happened with like, The so supporting far. actor's cut. It's a yeah. special uh, DVD extra. <laughs> well, yeah, at least in Moonlight, Naomi Harris kind of stands out as the main supporting female performance, um, so she won't oh, have yeah. the same problem. Does that crazy, you know, limited run box office that Moonlight had last weekend, does that help that movie, you think, Oscar-wise? Yes, yes. totally. Oh, definitely. Like, the per screen average yeah. was insane or something. Yeah, well, yeah. we got an email from the film's publicist saying, hey, guys, yeah. you know, you talked about it on the podcast last week, here's this amazing stat. So that's how, you know, that's how buzz builds. That's how people like us keep talking about a movie. Well, and I think the first thought that I think a lot of people have watching Moonlight at a festival or whatever is like, oh my God, I love this movie, but too bad, like, the world's not ready for yeah, yeah, it, or yeah. too yeah. bad, like, no one will embrace it, it's too arty, it's too weird. And so for it to immediately connect, well, it just washes that away, if it continues. Let's but I think so. it seems like it could continue, and there's so much just good buzz about it. Mm-hmm. And also that New York Times review, holy smokes. Yeah. And yeah. I hope it does, but it did open, like, in the friendliest markets towards the movie, right? Just yes. New York and L.A. so far. Yep. Amazing per theater average, but, like, so far has not hit the middle of America in any And we all so. remember the cautionary tale of Steve Jobs, which had this great per theater average opening last year in four theaters, and then just tanked when they opened it wide. Very different yeah, kind of movie. Yeah, but Steve Jobs was too black and too gay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've and, always thought about Apple and, in general. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure uh, the New York Times didn't call it the best film of the year. No. Steve Jobs, right? <laughs> yeah, that A.O. Scott thing was like a, a gift for the. I mean, the Vanity Fair review was quite glowing as uh, well. Indeed, but it came out over well Labor Day I think weekend, Little Gold so. Men's interview with Barry Jenkins really put him over the I know. <laughs> I expect to be thanked Cracked in the Oscar up. speech. Mm-hmm. So uh, just remember that, Barry. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. 
I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So we're going to move on to the interview that Richard did with director Kelly Reichert of Certain Women. And uh, the movie is open in theaters, but I don't think a lot of people have seen it yet. So before we get to your interview, Richard, what's Certain Women about and what makes it interesting? So it's a triptych, just like Moonlight, um, huh. but it's three separate stories. It's not about the same people. So it's based on short stories by a writer named Mel Malloy, and they're set in Montana. And it's this quiet look at the sort of interior lives of three different or four different women. Laura Dern's in one of them. Kristen Stewart and a great new actress named Lily Gladstone is in one. Uh, Michelle Williams. And then there's some guys played by Jared Harris and James LeGros. And it's, you know, true to Reichert's style, really small and unadorned, but I think kind of whispers with a lot of interesting ideas. So she's a really interesting person to talk to. She's, you know, a film professor in most of her daily life when she's not making a film. She's a really kind of thoughtful crafts person. All right. Well, we're going to listen to some of the trailer for Certain Women and then hear your interview with Kelly Record. I've never done this before. I guess we'll just start at the beginning. What are you doing here? Came to see my lawyer. My wife wants me out of the house. You can't keep coming here. Your wife works for you. No, she's the boss, actually. I wonder how much more there might be buried here. I was so afraid I'd get out of law school and be selling shoes. Mom works in a school cafeteria, my sister in a hospital laundry, so selling shoes is the nicest job a girl from my family is supposed to get. It'd be so lovely to think that if I were a man, people would listen and say, okay. Uh, It would be so restful. Hi, this is Richard at Vanity Fair. Is this Kelly? Hi, Richard. It's Kelly. How are you? Thanks for doing this. Sure. Thank you. So I saw this really lovely, special, unique kind of film back in January at the premiere at Sundance, where it was received from what I could tell very well, which is exciting. This was not your first time at Sundance, obviously. And your your first film, I believe, was there in 94. Is that right? 
Yeah, uh, River of Grass, and then Old Joy also right, of course. played there yeah. in 2005 or six. I forget. So you've had these kind of nice decade markers at that festival, and I would assume then have got to watch it change. You know, from this most recent experience, how does it compare? Like, I mean, obviously it's bigger, but at its core, do you think it still serves the same kind of purpose for a small film like yours? I guess one difference is when I went in 93, I had a lot of time. Nobody wanted to talk to me. No one cared. (laughs) (laughs) So I had a lot of time to see films. And um, I didn't see any films now. And that has changed all the festival experiences. Like I used to really discover a city and uh, go see a lot of, like festivals were a place to go see films. Mm -hmm. And now it's much more like you're in a hotel room kind of doing press all day and you don't really, I don't meet filmmakers the way I used to, and I don't see as many films at a festival. I mean, some of that has to do with my teaching schedule that I need. In, in 93, I was unemployed, more unemployed, so I had more time to just hang around festivals and watch movies, and now I have to sort of get back to work. But, I mean, I think how you experience these festivals is, is exactly how I think everyone's having their own experience. I mean, in, when I went in 93... The one thing I felt for sure was, you know, it was it was so great that I was included, and it felt kind of boys clubish, to be honest, as far as like a feeling. I mean, it's so hard because you know it's really hard to know because I was really nervous there and out of place, and admittedly kind of stoned the whole time I was there, <laughs> so I might have just been being paranoid. But I. You know, from that first festival, I made friends with Richard Glatzer, who passed away last year, but who then became an incredibly close friend for 20 years. And so, like, you can get something from a festival that's not, you go there thinking, like, it's all about what traction your film's going to get, and then you end up making a friend that's going to, like, enrich your life for 20 years. Yeah. For me, that festival has just continued. It's done nothing but support me right. throughout the years. I, I really don't know if I would have gotten any traction at all if they hadn't had me in the first place with my first film. Yeah, I mean, they're a great platform for a film like Certain Women, you know, which is small and, and, and kind of has a very, I think, particular set of ideas on its mind. It's a great big venue for that. When you were there this year, did you feel these waves of, of praise coming in, or do you kind of try to shut that out, or how do you relate to, like, reviews and things like that? Oh, I can, don't do that while I I block all that out while I'm there, but what I did, I know, I don't ever usually sit through a screening, Okay. but Kristen asked me to sit through the screening with her, and one thing that did feel really different since 93 was, like, the projection was beautiful, and the sound was really great. Like, it was such a nice theater uh, as far as all of that, which when you're um, showing your film for the first time, you really, you know, it's even fun for yourself to experience it in a good room with good sound. And I remember it being a little more wonky back in 93. (laughs) Sure. Both the theaters we were at, the Eccles and the Egyptian, were just great projection sound experiences. And this is a film, Certain Women, that really benefits, I think, from a, a great projection and a great sound. You know, it's set in Montana. Yeah. Uh, it has this very particular sense of place. And I think that's something that has really defined 
for me anyway, your career since the beginning, you know, I know you grew up in Miami, you've lived in New York, you've spent a lot of time in Oregon and now Montana. So it's been in this kind of peripatetic journey through America with certain women in particular. How long was the process of finding those very specific locations? And when do you kind of know that this is the right spot? Well, some of it's practical. I scouted uh, Oregon just out of habit. Mm -hmm. And even though I wanted to do something different, well, I first scouted Montana and then we scouted Oregon. And then I was really wanting to shoot in Boise. I really liked the look of that city. And then Oregon lost a lot of its funding. Idaho has no support for filmmakers and seems uninterested in filmmaking happening there. And um, Montana offered us a really generous grant. And so we went back to look at Montana anew because, you know, part of what you're looking for is, like, the landscape that will work. But you also need, like, an infrastructure where you can actually get crew and put crew up and, you know, get your dailies. Like, you need some things, you know, because all of that, the further away you are from that, the more it costs the more people you have to house, that's the true expense of making a film like this. I've been driving through Montana several times a year for forever between my treks from New York to Oregon. And so I knew Missoula, and I knew a little bit of eastern uh, Montana. So then we scouted um, Butte and Billings, and we kept like ending up in Livingston just as a resting place. Really, I fell upon that ranch with my scout, Charlie Skinner. It's such a big place to just set out and randomly start looking for a ranch. And I was saying, I just want a beige ranch. And we're going to like red barn after red barn, but also like finding a ranch that'll just the layout will work. And at first we were looking at cattle ranches and then on our way chasing some other lead, we passed the ranch and I said, wow, like, we need something like that, like that horse place we just passed. And then we just pulled over and watched it for a while. And eventually Charlie went up to the door and talked to the woman. And she was so amazing. And it was a woman who ran the ranch by herself. And she had 21 horses. And she had that dog that's in the movie. And I don't think she really believed we'd come back and shoot there. But she was so open. So then everything circled. It was like, this is this just is our place. This yeah. feels like the place. I was so excited by the whole layout and the colors and the just everything about that ranch, not even to mention the dog and the rancher. And so then everything had to sort of circle out from there. Then you're trying to find everything in proximity to there. And that meant shooting in Livingston, which we cheated a little bit and used some of Bozeman just to make Livingston look you know, the thing with Livingston, it's a great town, but you just didn't want it to be too cute or too quaint. It looks like a movie set when you're there, you right. know. But it was a great place to live. How long were you out there? Well, there was various trips out right. there. Um, I went out there before Christmas. Neil Kopp and I went back right after Christmas. And then I think I was out there for four months. And I think there was some trip to California because we thought the film wasn't going to happen this year. And then I went to California, and I was going to go back home. And on my last day in California, suddenly Sony came into the picture, and instead of going home, I went to Montana. 
and suddenly it was like, oh my God, we're making this movie. And that was in at some point in January. So I'm curious about the story you had about Sony kind of coming in at the last minute and saying, here's the money. Or, yeah. you know, you hear these stories about the financing process for independent film being kind of more complicated these days and, you know, the sort of gap between mega budget movies and independent cinema seems to be widening. Is that kind of the experience you have to brace yourself for when you're setting out to make a movie that like you don't really know when this is going to go or if it will go? You don't know when it's going to go and you sort of kind of start like with this film, you start trying to raise the money suspecting it'll take a year or so longer than you anticipate. Right. So in sitting out a year you know, we were, we thought we were going to go on night moves, and the money fell through, and we had to wait a year. And the film got better. I mean, you have more prep time. It's not like the worst thing that happens. It's just hard for a range in your life. Like, I teach, and, you know, I have to, like, give a heads up if I'm not going to be at my post, <laughs> right. you know, in way in the advance. And, and so it's really... It, it's difficult in that sense, and it's hard to hold your cast together and your crew together. You don't want to be telling your mates not to take other work if you're not really making a film. On the other hand, you might be making a film, so you want to hold them and, you know, yeah, it's all happening. Don't take any other work. You know, it's a right. it's a hairy place because you just don't want to screw anybody over and you're trying to build something that you might be building more than once and that is largely on the shoulders of Neil Kopp and Anish Johnny or has been for these last five movies and UTA uh, was pretty instrumental in hooking us up with Sony and it really I mean we had had the discussion that it wasn't happening this year and I just went to LA to see some friends before I was going to fly back home to New York and reapproach it later. And then literally the day I was going to fly home, I was out having lunch with Chris Blavelt and I was telling him that I thought the movie wasn't going to happen and that he should take another job. And Neil and Nish called and said, it's happening. Like, so it was really bizarre. Yeah. Like, Chris, don't take another job. Wait. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> it's happening. We were getting to the car. And he, I think he was like literally going to give me a lift to the airport. Uh, I ended up staying, and we went to the camera house and picked out lenses, oh, right? Wow. You know, on that same trip. So you're living in a state of not being able to plan your life properly. <laughs> so another kind of very carefully chosen aspect of this film is the cast, which includes Laura Dern, Kristen Stewart, Lily Gladstone, Michelle Williams, who you've, you've worked with several times. What is yeah. the thinking that goes in there? I mean, you know, Laura Dern, we've known for a long time. Kristen Stewart is kind of enjoying this new phase of her career. And Lily Gladstone is a relative newcomer. So can you talk a little bit about that yeah. casting process? Yeah. And Jared Harris and James LeGros. Of course, and, yes. Um, Renee Abelgeois, who I, all those three um, actors who I also just feel so lucky to have worked with. The process, uh, well, all of a sudden we were going to shoot and it was just like, is everybody really, I had really just sort of started working with that story and that was the last piece of the puzzle. And all of a sudden it was like, wow, we're making this right now. And so Michelle and LeGros, I had worked with both of them before. And so I reached out to them and Renee you know, I used his scene in um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller in one of my classes, and I know his voice so well, and I know that, like, 
I could recite that whole scene that he's in, all his parts in McCabe. So those guys all jumped in really quickly, and that was amazing. I was like, Michelle, you want to come do this? She's like, when? Next year? I was like, no, now. (laughs) Can you come now? And she did because she's a sport. And then uh, the Laura section of the film had been put together for a longer time, and um, I... I had wanted to work with her for such a long time, and I had been trying to get myself onto Enlightened because I loved that show, and I really wanted to direct a series, but only my friends got to direct those series. Uh, Todd Haynes did one, and Phil Morrison did one. And so I was like, okay, I'll work with Laura this way. So she came out, and Jared I met in New York, so he had been game for a long time. And Kristen, the, the ranch story had I'd had the longest, and Kristen had said uh, a long time ago she would play that role, but just sort of get in touch if it ever came together. So she was someone that you would... I knew her from... Um, well, I loved her in The Runaways. Oh, yeah, And, sure. um, and I loved Dakota Fanning. I thought her and Dakota Fanning in Ollie... Uh, Shawkat? Yeah, she's... A, all the women are, are, are so good in that movie. And so Kristen was uh, pals with Dakota, and Dakota went and worked on a movie with my friends Richard and Wash, and then whatever. It was all, like, kind of small world. So I had gotten the script to Kristen through those channels. I never really spoke to Kristen or met Kristen until she showed up the day before we were shooting, and she was just sort of all of a sudden at my door, like, hey, dude. And I was like, all right, this is real. She's she's here. (laughs) But Lily... That was Sterling Harjo had made Winter in the Blood with her, and I thought she had a beautiful performance in that. And she heard about us, and we heard about her, and she got hold of the script through. There's a casting agent in the States who just deals with Native American actors. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of very talented Native American actors to be had. I mean, we looked at some really good tapes. And then Lily's tape came separately. She just sent it to us herself, and it was just, she had done the whole scene, sort of filmed herself, dressed herself up, and put herself on a location and just sort of did the whole thing. And um, I thought, so her instincts were so interesting, you know, doing something without any indicators from me at all. And so I sent her back some notes, and she did it again. And it was great. And so she she was in Missoula, so she drove down and um, we met and we immediately put her to work with the uh, rancher. And she just started working on the ranch and lo and behold. Yeah. And it's, a, I mean, those scenes with her and Kristen and, or just her with the horses, I mean, they're really, it's she's really great. Yeah. So you'd mentioned, you know, enlightened and kind of curious about or wanting to do television. Is that something you're still pursuing? And is it the stability that attracts you or? No, it wasn't. I wasn't pursuing television. I just liked that show. Right. I thought I could fit that show. You know, it wasn't like television per se. It was just that show. Right. I mean, teaching gives me stability. Right. But if there was something, I can't do production for the sake of anything. Like, I find it the hardest thing. So it's like I have to really be into it if I'm going to do something. Not going to be a hired gun who's just kind of kind of going where the, where the work is. You really want to have a connection to it beyond that. It sounds like yeah. Otherwise, I'd rather teach. Yeah, yeah. But I I loved that show, and so I thought, oh, maybe Mike White will do another series in that same vein. And yeah, 
that would, that I'm would be great. I'm a huge Mike White fan. I, I, I love his work, and the combination of him and Laura together was super dynamite. I agree. The whole cast was so good, yeah. It's quite a show. Um, well, Kelly, this has been great. And again, congrats on the film. I'm glad that it came together and was able to be Thanks made. Because it's, it's pretty special. Thank you. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. So before we go home, we want to make some more bold predictions about the Oscar race. Guys, who's going to win Best Original Screenplay? This is a really interesting category. Mike, you wanted to do this one, so what do you see that's cool? I wow. It, <laughs> I don't know, man. This is a tough one where you want to give it to a bunch of people, you know? But I think Manchester by the Sea, I think. Kenneth Lonergan is a... Uh, I mean, Kenneth uh, Lonergan know, is a very talented writer. Beloved writer, yeah. He's a really, really, really brilliant writer. And I think if the competition is Moonlight, La La Land, first of all, those guys do not have the track record. And second of all, there's a lot going on in those films that make them great that's not the screenplay. Mm-hmm. So I think Manchester by the Sea, there's also a lot of stuff going great, but it's really performances and carrying out that incredible story and that great sort of whatever it is, Boston-y dialect and everything. I'm going to go with Manchester by the Sea. You know, I have a thing for this movie. Kenneth Lonergan uh, lost the Best Original Screenplay Oscar to Almost Famous, which we've talked about on the show. So, you know, he's overdue. He, mm-hmm. <laughs> for that reason alone, I will now be pushing very hard for this one. There you go. All right, Joanne, I brought up Cameron Crowe, so that's your turn. I know, that's my cue. Uh- <laughs> Well, I was going to say the same thing. Um, sorry, that's a boring answer. But I was curious if when I saw the Q&A for Manchester, Lucas Hedges said, I believe that it the idea was first Matt Damon and John Krasinski's idea. And Kenneth Lonergan wrote it from their idea. He might be really misinformed because I can't find like anything corroborating that right now. But I was just wondering if Damon and Krasinski would get like, original idea by Oscars by extension with Kenneth Lonergan. So wait, Damon was going to be Kyle Chandler and Krasinski was going to be Casey or? I think the reverse. The reverse. Because age-wise, it doesn't really seem that way. But I think so. But but it wasn't just that they were attached to Star. Like, according to Lucas Hedges, the young lead in that movie, and he might have been misinformed, it was their idea that Kenneth Lonergan built on. So, I don't know. Very interesting. I'm intrigued. So you also pick Manchester. 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 All right, well, uh, Joanna just spoke in a Boston accent, so Richard, that's your cue. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting that Moonlight is being considered an original, even though it's based on a play. I guess maybe they figured it was so loosely based that it it didn't really matter. Every year, there's always something that just really throws you off. So I would be happy if Moonlight won. I think one screenplay to look out for in the nominations field is Hell or High Water, Hmm. which is an original, very just just an original screenplay, is fun, pulpy, western, but with something on its mind, and a movie that I think could be a sleeper. I mean, I'm not the only person saying this, a sleeper Best Picture nominee if it goes to 10 or something. Speaking of sleepers, can I just, I just want to talk about this real quick. The Lobster, Captain Fantastic, and Swiss Army Man are all like weird movies that actually connected found audiences this year and i feel like we should keep them in the back of our minds even though they're not very oscary they've all they all got traction and like i was saying to you katie i think vigo mortensen for captain fantastic actually could slide in for a nomination he's so good in that i finally just watched it yeah and the lobster is a really crazy screenplay yeah i mean that that was actually going to be 
my pick, I don't know that it'll actually win, but I wanted to bring it up. Just I feel yeah. like The Lobster really could get a nomination at least. Like, yeah. That is like yeah. the original screenplay is where movies like The Lobster can sneak in. And that movie yeah. has, I mean, it premiered at Cannes a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. like May of 2015. So, yeah. and, and people are still talking mm-hmm. about it. Like, mm-hmm. I really feel like it could make its way in there because it's such a, it really sticks with you in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and Captain Fantastic is kind of a, I don't know, maybe the screenplay, the dialogue of it isn't necessarily mind-blowing, but it's such a great story. It's just a, I mean, it somehow manages to not be annoying, even though it's one of the most annoying topics I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> we should do our dark horses next week so we all can right, uh, yeah. celebrate all of that. So Kenny Lonergan, it's your year, according to uh, Kenny Lonergan. most of us. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review us on iTunes if you can. We really appreciate it. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, writing about award season and lots of other things. We're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And then on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? Rylaz, R-I-L-A. W-S. And Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Joanna? Jay wrote this. Sorry. <laughs> Can I do it again? <laughs> Quit your J-Rob. We all remember. Oh, I, I missed that Twitter handle. Okay. That was a good one. This episode was edited and produced by Ilana Milner, and thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for how we're all feeling two weeks ahead of the election goes to Mike Hogan. I... Wow. It... <laughs> Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.